It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Welcome to Democracy Sausage for this week. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute at the Australian National University. I'm also with the School of Politics and International Relations. And this podcast comes out each week, as I said, from the ANU. And uh, look, a week after the federal budget, and it's clear where the government's priorities are and I guess where the opposition's priorities are, or at least where they aren't, uh, we've seen where the opposition intends to go, we think, because there's been a fair amount of uh, uh, support for the budget, some criticism about its inflationary uh, impact um, that the opposition says it has and some other other matters, and we'll get into that. But I think as, a, as an opening observation, I'd say that uh, the budget was quite a surprising budget in the sense that it uh, eventually named a surplus, uh, and we've seen some criticism of the budget along the lines I just mentioned from the opposition, but there's been no real holding of it uh, you know, below the waterline. Instead, uh, we, we see the opposition's probably inclined to support most of the spending measures in the budget. So we'll see how that all gets reconciled, both uh, fiscally but also politically in coming days. Now, joining me to unpack these and related issues are a couple of old hands at Democracy Sausage, Dr Liz Allen, a.k.a. Dr Demography, if you are on Twitter, who is Senior Lecturer in the College of Arts and Social Sciences. Welcome back, Liz. It's good to be back. And Associate Professor Ben Phillips from the Centre for Social Research and Methods, who's uh, Done some, well, obviously, because he's very much in this sort of economic sphere, done some uh, interesting work on this recently. And I think, uh, Ben, again, welcome back to you. It's been quite a while since we spoke to you, but welcome back. Good afternoon, everybody. And you hosted a, or you were part of a of a, a post-budget breakfast the other morning at the Museum of Australian Democracy, one of the best buildings in Canberra, let's be honest, the old, uh, old Parliament House. Uh, and you went through some of these figures. Um, I guess might be a good place to start, really. Um, what was your overall impression of the budget? So, look, I'm a little bit conflicted, and I, th- I think part of it is that I've over the past sort of 14 or 15 years, I've modelled the last 15 budgets. This can be a bit of a soul-crushing thing to do <laughs> yeah. in that one often has these big expectations of all these amazing measures that you might implement or you could implement or all the great things government can do. And the reality is that each budget actually doesn't tend to do a huge amount. So, And that's the case both fiscally or economically but also politically as well. I mean, there's, there's sort of a lot of heat around budgets, but in some ways they're – 
they're not as interesting as we might those of us in the in the beltway as they say in the US might imagine I think that's right I think there was um a hope an expectation and I didn't really share that myself but say mm-hmm. uh, there'd be a very large increase to welfare payments in particular mm-hmm. the job seeker payments so I'm I'm a committee member of the economic inclusion advisory committee and they'd recommended a pretty substantial increase to job seeker of about 260 a fortnight so and this it, would have taken it to and the formula was to 90% of the age single age pension, that's right. right so currently you were on about 690 a fortnight it would have increased their payments to about 950 per fortnight so yeah. a huge increase that would mm. be uh, and there's people who had I guess some expectations that that, um, that might happen or it should happen and the reality was only a $40 per fortnight increase so from about 690 to about 730 so that sounds disappointing and perhaps it, it, is, it really is disappointing $40 out of $260 you can all do the maths on that it's a pretty small fraction mm. um, but also having done 15 budgets in a row I'm used to seeing budgets being cut for welfare this is probably the first budget where that's actually turned the corner and there's been a very very small increase so um, depends which way you want to look at it. But in terms of welfare, it wasn't as much as it needs to be increased, but I guess it's a start is how I probably felt about the budget. Yeah, it, that's, a, that's a good point. I mean, everyone, Liz, could see that you know, 40 bucks a fortnight, 20 bucks a week, or what did that work out to? $2.78 a day or something, I think, was the number, which is not going to even get you a, a cup of coffee. Doesn't um, get you a loaf of bread. No. Um, we all remember um, uh, Amanda Vanstone's uh, famous, you know, you couldn't, wouldn't fund a, a milkshake and a hamburger or whatever, <laughs> sandwich, I think it was. Um, this wouldn't get you one of those items by itself. Um, mm. uh, so in that sense, it was... It, it might have felt kind of almost tokenistic or piecemeal, but but it is important. I mean, Ben's point is important, right? Uh, we have not had uh, governments expanding welfare payments at all in recent yeah. times. And I've asked personally, as listeners of this podcast would know, I've asked personally treasurers for a number of years now, often at the uh, budget, um, the, the, the day after the budget, the press club address that treasurers traditionally do, asked them and shadow treasurers what they were going to do about unemployment benefit. And mm. the formula for both sides has always been the same. We don't have any plans to increase unemployment benefit. Yeah. That you know, the argument, the, the sort of argument that wasn't stated that you hear from advisors and so forth was there's no votes in the unemployed. Yes, there's been a small change here, mm. but there's been a, in some ways a significant change in mindset We've actually had a government make an increase. Definitely the recognition. I think it's, it, um, it is disappointing that it wasn't more, but I think that's because people, uh, particular elements of the community hold a progressive government or the Labor government to a different standard yeah. um, to a conservative government. And I think as a result of that, there, there, were, there, there were expectations and there were hopes that um, a, a Labor government would come in and make drastic reform, which of course for its own survival can't, mm. right? Mm. So it's not in a government's interest to make massive reform because it's not going to be it's not going to sustain them or in in any way be strategic for their longevity so i guess it, it, what we've seen is a recognition that that people on welfare are human and they deserve to be recognized and their hu- humanity recognized but at the same time obviously can't can't do much and and i think that that's what's that recognition is great but at the same time it, it it's quite sobering i think and painful for a lot of people 
Yeah, and part of that, as you say, is about expectations, not just expectations of a Labor government, which I think is right. I think mm. that's that's absolutely true and there was a sort of a sense that this government was going to uh, – after a you know long period, nearly a decade of, yeah. of the other side, that this government was going to sort of solve a number of uh, problems, some of which were getting worse through that period, yeah, like yeah. this, you know, like the sort of um, yep. the cost of living gap between what you were getting on on JobKeeper and 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 the actual cost, you know, was mm. was getting worse and worse. Uh, so yes, there are expectations that are around government, but there are also expectations around that particular thing. And in the context of the budget, we know there was a very um, very strong and public and persuasive case made by a number of people, including the committee Ben was on, yeah. uh, to to lift the doll, to do something sort of structural and serious here. Mm. And in the end, I guess it doesn't feel like it was structural and serious. Uh, uh, no, I mean, serious in the sense that we've just covered, but yep. but not not dramatic in terms of reshaping the lives of um, of people who are on that unemployment benefit. And and, and you're, you're right. It, it's not going to do anything substantive for people who are on these payments, right? That's that's just the reality. I mean, and and that amount per day is not going to get you a loaf of bread at Coles or Woolies, right? It's just not. So it feels like um a bit like shush money, you know, it's it's not enough to to really make a difference for people who are on welfare, but it's just enough to say exactly what we've been saying, mm. which is, well, at least they did something. It's the first time that they've done something in a long time. So it's politically very strategic um, and smart from, from the government's perspective. But, yeah, I, I, look, I do really consider what our priorities are. And I think, you know, we keep hearing politicians say, you know, budgets at a national level are much like a budget at the household level. It's all about priorities. And we can we can tell a lot about the priorities of a government and perhaps an, a nation based on policies and, and, and the budget. And I don't know, I, I'm worried about where our priorities lie. Yeah, although as I say, I think we we have to acknowledge that there were, were some better signals in yes. terms of where yep. priorities lie uh, and yep. and the, and the fair treatment of all citizens, including as uh, you know the treasurer made the point at that post budget address about helping the most vulnerable. He said, you know, mm. this is the basis of you know that is people who can afford to uh, to help out through the tax and ta transfer system, mm. helping those people who are most vulnerable. That is the basis of social welfare, social security, uh, and it was ever thus. And we've got a recognition of that. There's at least a coming together of a kind of um, uh, the, the, the underweening logic of, of political discourse and the realities for, for people on the ground. Ben, I wonder if, going back to your, your committee and the recommendation about uh, in you know, putting it to, to hiking it up to ninety percent of the aged pension. I wonder if, and and thinking about this in terms of the idea of structural reform, whether this could only ever be seen what we've just seen in this budget could only ever be seen as kind of piecemeal, even though the notwithstanding the amounts small anyway, but but because it's not indexed in the way the pension is. 
Yeah, I think there's. I think one thing we probably should mention is that there w- was one area where there was a significant reform, and that was for single parents. Yes, I was mm, going to come yes. to that. Uh, yeah. So uh, I think that the forty dollars per fortnight is is um, well, in one way, to be honest, it's a bit pathetic, really. But certainly for the single parents, we had a very substantial increase. Where those with older children, once your child mm. turns eight, under the under the current system, you're shifted onto the the job seeker payment, and that's going to now. You'll be you'll be staying on the parenting payment until your youngest child is fourteen. So that's a, a pretty dramatic change for those I'll, those persons. They'll get about a hundred dollars per week or two hundred dollars per fortnight as an increase in their payment. So that's um, that's easily enough to to buy a loaf of bread and to do it all is. sorts of things that Liz is concerned that won't be able to be happening for those who are left behind. It's only a small number of people though. I think it's budgeted or projected to be about sixty thousand people. So not a big change. You've still got another you know nine hundred or so thousand people on on the job seeker payment and related payments who are really languishing on a very, very low payment. And as you mentioned, there's the other structural issues around, uh, say, the indexation of the payments into the future. So the the situation only gets worse into the future Mm. without some other more substantial increases. Now, having said that, I think with the, the Economic Inclusion Committee, I think there'll be continued pressure on the government each budget uh, each budget update even, to do more work in this area. So to increase those payments or to look at other areas such as the more the more structural elements such as the indexation mm. of the payments um, and perhaps look at some of the other payments as well. It's not just the job seeker that's struggling. We had an increase to rent assistance, which was welcome. That was, a, I think, a 15% increase to the, to the payment. And the um, government makes the point, and it's a valid point, that a lot of people who are on unemployment benefit are going to be eligible for rent assistance and they're going to benefit from uh, some of the Medicare changes and some other things. So there's a suite of things that hopefully will help to take some of the pressure off for people living right on the margin. I think that's certainly true, but I'd still certainly argue that those people who are just on, say, the base payment of the job seeker payment, with a, they're basically getting $40 a fortnight extra. They might get about $15 or $20 extra per fortnight with, say, rent assistance. Um, that's still not really nearly enough. There's still a very long way from from the poverty line there. I think even with this increase, they're still about $300 or so per fortnight lower than the poverty line. So um, it's still a, a pretty marginal existence if, if that's a payment you're on for a long time. If you're on the payment for a short time, only say a five or six weeks and you had some other resources, it probably isn't a big deal and maybe mm. it's okay. But increasingly, you've got an issue with the job seeker payment, a structural issue that yes. you've got lots of people who are on that payment who perhaps 20 years ago wouldn't have been on that payment. They would have been on, say, a disability support payment or or the single parent pension or, or some other payment. Um, so that's, that's another issue. It's not just a matter of the payment being too low, but the people who are on that payment are no longer just those who are ideally just transitioning between one job to the next. If that was the case, they're on the payment, say, for a month or two, it's probably not such a big deal. Um, But increasingly, you've got people who are on that payment for um, months, years, perhaps even decades for some people. So for those people, it's it's a big problem to to be on that payment that's so low for so long. Even though there's been a small increase, it's not really enough. That's right. And some of those people who are on that payment, are on that unemployment payment, are in that older age bracket. We've mm-hmm. seen a change there as well, haven't we? Reducing from I think sixty to fifty-five, uh, the the point at which extra assistance cuts in uh, a higher rate yeah, of the dollar. Yeah. So on the, the the current system, once you turn sixty, your payment instead of being say six ninety-three a fortnight, it's about six hundred, about seven hundred and fifty a fortnight. I think it is roughly. And this is in recognition that you are in a cohort that is. Less, just just far less likely to be able to get reemployed. 
That's true. I think the evidence is a little mixed on that one and not particularly strong. I think there's there's a lot of issues for a lot of people on on that payment in terms of getting off welfare and and, and getting into it, getting into the labour market in a long term sort of a way. Um, so they've shifted it from being age sixty to age fifty five, where you now benefit a little bit from a slightly higher payment. And it is true that some older people, some older women in particular, might have a few more battles in terms of getting a job. But you've also got a very large cohort within that group who are deemed to be called uh, the partial capacity group. And these are people, it's about 40% of those on the payment in total, I think. And these are people who have a very, a very limited ability to to work, say, at a full-time amount. Um, so those people are also likely to struggle to get employment. So they're likely to, to languish on that payment potentially for many, many months, many, many years, um, which is I think is very concerning. Mm. Uh, Liz, a lot of those people, as Ben just said, um, and this was uh, a function or a feature of the of the discourse uh, leading up to the budget as well, are, are older women. Yeah. Uh, and there's some argument about whether this group is as you know is the fastest growing group or whatever it was. Um, you know, I've I've seen a, a fair bit of to and fro on social media and in mm. some of the commentary around this, but uh, certainly for for women who have been victims of uh, social uh, of, of domestic violence yep. who've been um, uh, uh, come out of um, separations and divorces with very very limited resources. You know, we know that women's super is uh, super savings are generally lower than men's mm. and so forth. And there, these are people in many cases whose uh, ability to re-enter the workforce, whose attractiveness to the workforce, mm. is is not that great, and who who may not have the mobility. This is one of the other things that doesn't yeah. get talked about a lot. But it's all very well to say there's a number of Vacancies in 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 you know employers can't fill some of these vacancies, but not everyone on, on the unemployment benefit is able to take up those vacancies or or is attractive to those employers. Mm. Certainly, leading up to the budget, there was uh, a, a leak or or was it? What did we decide it was? It wasn't a leak, perhaps a, a strategic a release of information. That's um, yeah, generally a drop. Yeah, yeah, yeah that um uh, that kind of suggested that uh, people fifty five and over would would be the only beneficiaries of a, of of an increase and that alone got me very worried i think that um um i'm not discounting anything that that we've just discussed around the the disadvantage or the vulnerability that people over the age of 55 experience it concerned me from, I guess, a demographic perspective that there was this kind of potential for a wedge. We've already got enormous intergenerational kind of issues going on, particularly around the transference of wealth, around mm. home ownership, rates of home ownership um, generation to generation, uh, mental health, uh, suicide, rates of self-harm, all of these things you know, particular are particularly concentrated among younger people, and you know the the demographic theories are that if we if we look after people early on in the in life, then we can we have the the greatest potential to correct inequalities or make impact uh, with regard to the the adverse consequences redressing the adverse consequences of inequality if we can tackle it early on. So that kind of idea that we would do it at the at at one end and not across the board or or not at all for people under 55 was greatly concerning to me. So it, I'm glad that we've seen 
both a recognition of the the particular sensitivities and and issues for people over fifty five, while also recognizing that we needed uh, help across the board. But I still, I just still have this really significant niggling feeling of this kind of this this festering intergenerational warfare that. I think we, you know, if you look on social media, Twitter in particular at the moment, um, I kind of accidentally unleashed a bit of a storm concerning um, trying to debunk a myth around whether older women were the fastest growing uh, group among homeless Australians. And it just, you know, it, 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 it exploded beyond belief. I just thought I was just kind of and presenting things are, things, facts. Things are normally so calm on Twitter. I don't uh, know. <laughs> what happened? Yeah. Um, these, these, I don't know, my naive mind, I'm thinking, these are facts. People are going to be into facts, right? Uh, no, they're oh, not. Oh, no, no, no. People do not aren't keen on facts, right? No, no. And not so, if they don't support their original it, proposition. Exactly. Yeah. Not if it, 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 it was... It, it kind of went against their ideological frame of the world and 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 I think what made me realise even more in that moment was we've got a massive problem with kind of fake news and, and alternative facts across the ideology um, uh, uh, spectrum in Australia. And we've got a problem with envy mongers as well, oh. people who are sort of constantly trying to find out well, who doesn't benefit from this and how do I step forward and represent them. And we've seen a, a fair bit of that. I, I Someone said to me prior to the uh, budget, oh, well, there'll be some uh, – some grief if you know from from middle Australia if uh, the unemployment benefit gets adjusted, and I thought, oh come on, no one's going to worry about that. I mean, it, no one could seriously argue that that is sustainable. There, every economist, every we've got employers. I mean, the the vast array array of people who were saying that the unemployment benefit was so low that it was itself a barrier to re-entry to work and needed adjusting. Mm. And then you get people saying that, well, I've been somewhat uh, disagreeably surprised in the days afterwards that there are those people and some of them are in the opposition who are arguing that the budget does nothing for middle Australia mm. um, and that, you know, increasing the dole, which the opposition has not committed to yet, even yeah. parsimonious though that amount is, uh, the opposition is not committed to it. So uh, there's there's a fair amount of envy farming going on, I think, in um, in our politics. I'll just, uh, we'll, we'll come back to that because we need to go to a break and we'll be back with this discussion in just a moment. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
Welcome back. I'm with Ben Phillips and Liz Allen, and we're discussing the uh, budget and a whole lot of issues that that come around that. We were just talking about the, I suppose, the sort of social politics of of this budget. Um, what, what's your response to the to what I was just saying, Liz, before uh, the break about you know just the extent to which you know some people have been out there kind of really, uh, I, I suppose, leveraging this idea that that the budget has has disadvantaged middle Australia? As as people, we tend to lack perspective. So we view the world through our own challenges and our own issues and we, without regard for what it might be like for others. So our perspective on the world, say, for example, if we are a middle-income family, might be that we're struggling, right, but the struggle of someone this middle-income family is very different to what the struggle looks like for someone on a low income or on on welfare, and the same applies to someone at the top end of town. Our 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 perspective, we don't seem to realise that our that our own experiences cannot be used to to determine anybody else's worth or 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 right to something. It's a good point, but Ben, it's also true to say that probably those households that Liz was just talking about, let's call them kind of middle income households, that might be really feeling the pinch from from high interest rates and inflation and energy costs and so forth. That to them it may feel as real, you know, if they are seriously having to contemplate the idea of um, not being able to meet their their mortgage costs because they've gone up by a thousand dollars a month or more. Um, yes, it may be that objectively we can look at that circumstance and say, well, you've got the capacity to to cut some costs, you know, get rid of the second car or or or, or even move to uh, cheaper housing. But they are pretty substantial steps backwards. And we shouldn't really be surprised, I suppose, that some people are going to be saying, well, I'm really feeling the pinch here. I'm in middle Australia and I didn't get anything out of the government. Sure. Look, I think I'd be in agreement with Liz that I mean, my main concern as a social researcher tends to be those who are really struggling, which is the those at the bottom end, the low income, low income earners and, and the welfare recipients who are, say, on the job seeker payment. Having said that, I looking at the numbers, I can certainly see that the last 12 months has been challenging for some mm. in the middle and even those a bit higher up. Uh, many people have got some pretty big pretty big mortgages and obviously interest rates have increased really quite substantially, say maybe 50%, 50% their, their mortgage may have increased over the past 12 months. So that's a, um, whilst you're still probably, I guess, not necessarily as financially stressed as those at the bottom, there's been a big change in your financial circumstance for, mm. for some of those people, which is which can be confronting for some. Uh, what, I, what I would add though is that um, there's been a lot of talk about, or some talk, um, I'm a little more optimistic than perhaps some, but there's been quite a bit of talk about those um, at the bottom end getting something out of this budget and those in the middle or those at the top getting getting nothing at all. I would add that there are some measures coming in in next financial year and the financial year after that that are actually very substantial and mm. much more substantial than what those at the bottom are getting. So you've got the childcare payments that are coming in um, in just a couple of months' time and that 
that, that money mostly goes to middle-income Australia and to some extent higher-income Australia. Correct. Uh, and also, of course, you've got these big stage three tax cuts that come in in about 14 months' time, and that's very much substantial mm. to, and that's very much biased towards mostly high-income families. So when you put all of this together, which I'm doing at the moment, we're about to release a, a research paper about that, you do see that when you just look at this budget, it certainly helps low-income families more than middle or high-income. Um, in fact, almost exclusively low-income. When you bring it all together, you look at childcare, you look at particularly the stage three tax cuts, and you also look at the, the welfare payments, it really skews mostly towards, in terms of dollars, very much the high-income families and middle-income families and not really the bottom end That's that uh, so much at all. So mm. there's a longer-term story there compared mm. to the, the short-term story. On the politics of the budget and looking at those numbers, um, obviously it was a big thing for a Labor government to deliver a surplus, for any government, frankly. I mean, we hear a lot about surpluses. We don't see them so often, and uh, we certainly haven't seen them so often recently, and a Labor government has now done it. Many people have made the point that this is politically quite significant, you know, removing a, a kind of um, uh, or dismantling an argument that the the coalition puts around that they are the superior economic managers at all times. Um and that may be true, but of course, it's a one-off, at least on the budget numbers as we understand them at the moment. At the moment, they're predicated on commodity prices coming off, but we know that the budget is also inflated by personal taxes to a higher degree than normal. Income tax, I think, has become more than half of the windfall to the government as a result of low unemployment, and we know employment is going to fall. That is, unemployment is going to rise. That's what the Reserve Bank is actually dialing into the economy at the moment, unemployment. It's another way of putting, you know, slowing down the economy. Um, so uh, I wonder, going back to the dole payment, for example, whether it just wasn't an option to go further because that that amount is going to increase as a liability to the government as unemployment goes up. So I think, I mean, the main concern with inflation, I guess, is the here and now. Um, the, the budget paper suggests that inflation will come down in future years. Now, that's a, a projection or even just a hope as opposed to we, we know that it's going to, of course. Uh, look, in my view, the, the the increase in the welfare payments is relatively minor. And even if they had gone the whole hog and gone the full $260 per fortnight that the um, that EAC or the Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee recommended in a sense, uh, I don't think that would have been all that inflationary. You're talking about maybe $5 billion a year of extra payments. And that sounds like a lot of money. People, I think, get a bit confused about millions and billions and it all just sounds like an enormous number. But you've also got to think that the government's its total spending each year is somewhere in the order of six or $700 billion per year. Um, consumption across the whole economy is in the order of $1,200, $1,300 billion per year. So an extra $5 billion, look, it doesn't help reduce inflation, but probably isn't going to make a very big difference yeah, either. Yeah. It's interesting yeah. though, because uh, advocates of uh, stimulus payments, uh, when times are, are, are bad and the economy needs to be protected from uh, you know, what they call economic headwinds internationally and so forth, we often hear the argument put by uh, advocates of, uh, of, of the, um, the less well-off uh, that the payments should go to them because all of that money will be turned straight into the economy and that will be stimulatory. So is there a mismatch between those two arguments? Look, I think so, but the stimulus payments, I think they were absolutely substantial. I mean, they, mm. were, they were, you know, I can't remember the exact figure, but we're talking about somewhere close to $100 billion a year or more than that it might have been. I forget the well, exact Well, we were figures. talking about COVID, you mean? Yeah, through yeah, COVID. $303 yeah, billion, dollars, I think. Extraordinary yeah. amounts. 
Um, so I, I just don't think there's really any comparison with the sort of money that was going into potentially going into additional welfare payments. Um, mm. Now, one thing I'll point out, maybe this is a bit of a, a prickly topic, and look, I think the so the additional income, or not income support, but wages that's going to, say, aged care workers, wonderful thing to do, of course, but we don't worry about the inflation side of that for some reason. Whereas, say, for the unemployed people, uh, for some reason, that's a big concern. And they're kind of fairly similar sorts of numbers of where they potentially could have gone. I think the, the injection into aged care, and I don't want to say that's a bad thing for a moment, no, um, no, I wouldn't. No, I understand what you're saying. Wouldn't thing. Yeah. Um, but I think it was about eleven or twelve billion dollars over the four estimates, which is a lot more than what was going into, say, the the unemployment payment. Um, and no one's talked about that being inflationary, and I don't think it will be. Uh, but it's interesting how these things kind of play out. And interesting, it plays these, out. isn't it? it? It's totally about priorities, right? Mm. And it and it comes down to I don't know. In my head, whenever I make decisions um, in life, I think, well, what is it that I want to be? What is it? What is what is it that I want to get out of this? What's the intended outcome, and what's that going to likely impact my life or the people's lives around me? Right? Why are we not thinking about what we want to be as a country? Yeah. What are our priorities? What is our mission statement, if you like? And I, I, I totally, I don't want to be the, the um, the poo poo on the on your parade. But I just I feel like our priorities aren't there. They're not not aligning with what a lot of people would would think Australia stands for, and that is that everyone gets a fair go, right? The reality is that you don't get a fair go if you're a particular type of person. Mm. And I just want to go back to this idea that you know around that that we we fail to kind of account for what other people's lives might be like we lack perspective because we see it through our own lenses right our own life experience our own lived experiences but but, but just just to interrupt you there for a sec not all of us though I mean, there are there there are many people who have been advocating for Without these these improvements for people who are dependent yes. on social security, yes. for example. Yes, who do understand that or are trying to understand. Yes, that. I totally. Um, I, I yes, definitely. Without the advocacy for particular women's groups, I don't think we would see the great reform that we 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 saw in 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 the last budget. But I just want to say that in terms of this. Perception is more powerful than reality. So in the main, what we perceive the world to be, take crime rates, for example, research shows that we, if we think something is true, then we behave like it is true, yeah. right? Regardless of whether or not someone wants to fact check us and tell it's wrong. Hmm. Even when we've been corrected, we still go on gut. And I just... I. I think we need a bit of a reality check in Australia and it would be nice to have more voices from advocacy groups being elevated so that we could hear these perspectives and so that we could get more of a reality check. I'm not sure whether it would be terribly successful. It might anger particular aspects of of um, the voting um, Australian public, but I just... I don't know. I just I just have this feeling that we we are headed in a direction that it feels like we're somewhat out of control. We've lost our way. We need to pause for a minute and just take a breath and have a a reality check. 
Well, yes, I understand what you're saying, and I think it's a very persuasive point. Um, aren't there some reasons also for some optimism about that in the sense that we have seen a change of government and a yes. government that has, albeit in these very incremental ways, but yes. nonetheless uh, stepped into this debate. Yes. Um, I thought Chalmers's defence of Social Security the other day was very forceful. Um, yeah. And uh, um, there is a lot more work to be done here. Uh, and there are political constituencies that need to be built for social change, yes. for social, political, economic change. You can't just come in and pull a bunch of levers and, no. and hope that it all works. I mean, you made that uh, point in your opening remarks yeah. about about what's politically achievable. Governments That's need right. to survive. You can't improve the country from opposition. Um, but I think you've hit the nail on the head. You can run an information campaign or say something that, that signals a leadership or signals priority while also taking different action. So let me, it's, that sounds like propaganda, but, but let me explain that. So say, for example, you can say, budget's really bad, right? And think about it again. We say that, I say that to my kids, look, we, you know, times are tough at the moment. We can't afford that right now. Mm. But, and then I'll have this conversation about the importance of these things or the value of, of whatever, right? In, in terms of the the how what mummy thinks about these things. And I think we need to see a little bit more of this from this government. Okay, we're times are tough, we're doing what we can, but we actually hold these values. And I think they are doing it, but I'm not sure that it's getting the traction or the messaging is right yet. So that's about political leadership. Yes. And it's about Political authority, or yes. having the political capital to 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 sort of do that, to yeah. and to spend and to sort of weigh into some of those arguments. I mean, the big, the big kind of stone on the heart of all of this, really, and you mentioned it before, Ben, is those stage three tax cuts, a formula that a Labor government would not have designed itself, mm. a formula that came about because Labor in opposition did not want to give the then Liberal government the leverage to say the and a new Labor government would be. Uh, coming after your wealth would be taxing you more. We propose these tax cuts. They're going to roll them back, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and Labor did try and separate out the, the the tax package that the Morrison government put forward but was rebuffed on that. The government did what governments do. It said, no, this is a tax package. You have to vote for the whole thing. And in the end, Labor decided to support high-end tax cuts in order to get earlier ones for, for people down the scale. But nonetheless, going to Liz's point, this is this is a big kind of um, conundrum, I suppose, mm. a big contradiction for Labor. Really, it's about um, Albanese and Chalmers are both sort of strongly committed to these tax cuts coming in, which are already legislated, as you said. They come in in uh, July of twenty twenty four. They will give nine thousand dollars a year to people over two hundred thousand dollars a year. That's a that's a that's a fair windfall. Yeah, look, I mean, the, the stage three tax cuts, when they come in in 2024, it's about $18 billion. Um, and that, as you point out, mostly goes to the top 20% of the income distribution. Mm -hmm. And that compares to the $40 per fortnight increase is about a billion dollars per year, mm. which goes to the bottom 20%, bottom 40% mostly. Will uh, those cut, the stage three um, tax cuts, will they be inflationary? Look, <laughs> it's a good question. I think. 
People have got so much money there, they're <laughs> yeah. not going to spend it. <laughs> I think the argument there, which I have some sympathy for, I can um, think of arguments for and against whether they're inflationary, but it, it's, it's coming in 2024 and in, uh, in budget world anyway, in the budget papers, yes. inflation's on the way down by then. Now, of course, that might all change in, in six months' time and we might start getting nervous about, infl- about inflation, the, you know, the genie being out of the bottle or whatever they say. Um, look, one point I would make is I'm a little more optimistic perhaps around, say, the social security side of things. There, there was this $40 per fortnight increase, a, a tiny amount of money obviously, but I, the response hasn't been that negative I don't think overall. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think if, to me, it feels a little different uh, having been modeling these things and being in this space for probably 10 or 15, about 15 years. I think if you went back 10 or so years ago, say when, when Abbott had just come in in 2013 or 2014, whatever it was, yeah. I think um, the mood was very much against those sorts of things. So yes. I think if that had been increased back then, there would have been much more of an outcry. I, I haven't seen a lot of opinion pieces. There's been one or two. I think there was one by maybe Peter Credlin over the weekend. But by and large, there hasn't been a lot of negativity against it. It doesn't seem like a huge negative for the government. Whereas mm. I think if you went back 10 years or so ago, um, there would have been a lot more talk about bludgers. It's been a little bit I this time. I think that was the word yeah. in the headline of her very piece that it you was, referred yes. to, yeah. bludgers. I mean- there hasn't been too much of it, though. It's been There's been a few pieces here and there, but it's mm. been more been talk about, oh, there's not really fiscal room for this at the moment, as opposed to the sort of the bludger discourse, mm. I, I feel. Mm. Yeah. Um, just finally, in the time we've got left, the other thing that is a big feature of the budget is the uh, population projections. Liz, yes. you're a demographer. Um, yes. uh, 1.5 million extra people. Peter Dutton's out there saying this is adding an, a, a population the size of Adelaide mm. to the population over the next five years. Um, and, uh, you know, this, I, I suppose we're meant to panic, should we? Don't panic. Don't panic. You no need to panic. Let's put this in perspective, right? Um, it's almost like the so the gov the the opposition really can't fault the government's budget, right? So what else are they going to to go hard against the government with? Population. Population is one of those things that we see wheeled out around elections, around any kind of sticky kind of situation because the moment we spark the population fear, it's like it takes its own course, it's out of control and it's this populist politics that is 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 vile but it, it's strategic and it and it and it helps historically conservative governments. And so it's a strategy. And I got to say, I kind of predicted that it would happen. I, I, I suspected that that's the, the, the numbers exactly. Aren't, yeah, the numbers aren't dramatically different from what would have no. happened under. And, yeah, yeah. And so in fact, I think exactly. the, the previous government's projections, had COVID not come around, yep. was that we would already be at twenty-seven million. That, so yeah. So look, if we hadn't had COVID, we would have had a bigger population. Um. Uh. And and so what we're seeing with the numbers of net overseas migration. They look very high. They are high, but that's because they're high because we had a pause during COVID. Borders were closed. We effectively had a deficit. We had people, more people leaving the country mm. than than coming by tens of thousands. So it's a catch up, effectively. Not, I wouldn't say catch up because when we say catch up, people will think in their head. Source. We're, we're, no, we're, that's catch up. Yeah, yeah. We've, okay, we're, we're we're playing catch up, or we're trying to fill the void that we lost. We will we will likely never see 
that population, um, it's gone to us, if you like. Mm. Just consider what it is rather is we hit pause and we've then hit the play button again, opening borders. We had so many people leave during COVID that we now don't have the levers who are exiting the population to offset those that are coming oh, I see, in, right. in so, terms of the numbers. Yeah, so that's the importance of saying net. The net, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what will happen, though, is that as – so any student who was perhaps ready to go in, like, in the next two years would have left, even though they had, you know, a couple of years still left on their degree, for example, or workers. They did exactly what they were told, go home, even though Australia perhaps was home. So we've restarted the clock again. And now we've got higher net overseas migration than we are historically used to seeing because we don't have the outflow that that we would likely have had if we hadn't have had people leave and had this this you know enormous um, deficit in in, right. in norm net overseas right. migration. So don't panic. It is. Is an, it's all down to accounting, if you like, and we're not playing catch up. So we're not like pulling more people in to kind of offset what we're what we've what we've been through during COVID. Not at all. We, as you said, are going to have a lower population in the medium term as a result of COVID, not a higher one because of what we're seeing now. So, but Peter Dutton's got a point, hasn't he? Or at least there's a legitimacy to the question, uh, where are people going to live? During a rental crisis, uh, we know that we have a housing crisis more broadly yep. in this country. You know, the infrastructure implications yep. and so forth. Uh, if, if there's an answer to that, then then that's good. And if there isn't an answer to it, then I suppose it, it establishes a legitimate concern. Uh, look, I, um, and Ben could speak more about housing, uh, definitely. But who helps build homes in Australia? Workers that come from overseas help, right? the The biggest chunk at the moment of people that are coming to Australia are students. Where do they typically live? They typically live around their place of education, mm-hmm. where there is generally established. Um, uh, Accommodation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, it, it really angers me that we have these two issues connected. Um, you know, we hear uh, population is an issue, increasing rates of population growth are an issue, and generally that's code for we don't like immigration. Dutton even didn't go the population is a problem issue. He went straight to immigration. He bypassed the code and went straight for the 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 thing he knew would hit hard. And then this issue of congestion and so on. Take a deep breath and consider this. Our infrastructure investment in this country is woeful. From state and territories to national level, if it does not if it cannot be achieved in the political life cycle of a government that it's not going to be invested in. <laughs> Why? Because we don't want some other um, party to take credit for what we built or what we invested in, right? That short-term um, thinking has locked us in a really sticky situation when it comes to infrastructure investment and development. So we're we're trying to kind of we're, – we're, we're running to stand still mm. – when we've got all of these issues in the past, we keep kicking the can down the road. 
we have to build infrastructure, we have to fund it and like, but don't believe what you've been told on population, particularly if it's been designed to scare you. I think on the on the housing front, an important thing to remember, which 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 you mentioned before, Mark, is that where we're expected to be in terms of the population by say twenty thirty is actually lower today than what it was about three years ago. Is mm. that right, Liz? Yep. I, I think it might be. Yeah. So we've had actually had very very strong home building in over the last decade. We probably had the strongest period I think we've ever had. We had a had a housing boom, and there is I think there is some short term issues at the moment. Um, I don't think we should lose our minds though over the occasional short-term issue we have with housing. There is likely to be at the moment, there's obviously been an increase in construction costs and there's probably, there is likely to be some reduction in the amount that we are building. Um, but I think we can get a little bit overexcited about um, about the, the the ups and downs of the building cycle. And we're probably going into a bit of a down period. Um, I don't think that makes an enormous difference to the overall population. You've got 11 million dwellings in Australia and if you have one one or two years where you perhaps build 20 or 30,000 less homes than you'd like, I don't think it makes an enormous difference in aggregate. Keeping in mind there's obviously certain localised areas mm. where there will be some, no doubt some, some issues. Um, but we have built a lot of houses in the past. Uh, we'll continue to build housing in the future. The issues I think still really remain around the low income um, households, mm. particularly low-income renters, where we probably have a lack of supply, and we've always had, or at least in the last say decade or so, we've had issues around the lack of supply for low-income housing and and a bit of a lack of um, public housing. That's where the issues are. We had a bit of a strange period through COVID where we um, we would we had a reduction in the number of people per household. Um, people they wanted to live perhaps in you know with, with fewer people in in the household for because of you know, reasons around covid or or whatever was going on through covid mm. and that may retrace its steps that trend We're not we don't know if that's going to happen but that if that retraces its its um its its the the, the trend then that to some extent solves the problem at least in the short term yeah i mean it's a very good point we have so much more capacity in our existing housing mm-hmm. stock that is underutilized uh, just because we're wealthy enough to do it historically and um, it's just getting worse you know these sort of McMansions expanding everywhere and you know um, it's you know six bathrooms and all this sort of stuff you see <laughs> really really I mean just endless vanity it's vanity projects that's what yep. it is um, now look thank you it's been absolutely fantastic discussion really fascinating a great way to uh, sort of trawl through some of the issues out of the budget and get some uh, brilliant perspectives and I want to thank you for both being on democracy sausage again and look forward to talking to you again another time my pleasure I look forward to it that is the podcast for this week uh, you can uh, get in touch with us at democracy sausage at anu.edu.au that's the email democracysausage at anu.edu.au and you can also subscribe to this podcast which we'd certainly appreciate you doing and uh, perhaps even leave a review until next week uh, that's your lot for now ciao